Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Uh, today we're going to do a subject that has been requested a few times over the course of, of our history doing this podcast, and I hope that eventually we'll get to everyone's suggestions because you guys are full of good ones, but the one we're going to discuss today is foot binding. Yes, Chinese foot binding. It's something that I think a lot of people are familiar with. Um, it does not, it's a practice that does not happen anymore. In fact, there are maybe a couple hundred women, it's estimated, left in China who still have bound feet. Yeah, there have actually been a lot of pieces in the last few years about these, you know, women that are dying off and mm-hmm. how eventually, you know, if you wanted to see bound feet, you won't be able to anymore. Um, but it doesn't seem to be, you know, no one's, no one's weeping over it in China. Yeah. And, and a lot of times when we hear about foot binding, it's often in this very negative sense of, uh, symbol of kind of women being subjugated, having their feet broken at a, at a young age and being bound and, and essentially crippling them. Um, but the information that Molly and I found, painted a much more complex picture of where foot binding came from and why it happened even after it was outlawed in 1912. So Molly, why don't we travel back in time to the Song Dynasty in China in the Southern Tang Kingdom around uh, 960 to 1200 A.D.? Yeah, that's when the first historical records show that there was actually foot binding happening. And uh, the story goes that the uh, ruler had his heart captured by a concubine dancer uh, who bound her feet so that she could do what she called a lotus dance. Yes, and you might think of this, uh, she wrapped her feet in silk, and it sounds like it was something similar to point shoes that ballet dancers wear in order to dance up on the tippy toes. But then uh, it took a, a more extreme form as it caught on. And to actually bind feet, what you would do is you would break the toes so that they would go under the foot. Mm-hmm. And you the goal was to try and curve, just make this monster arch so that those toes ended up as close to the heels as possible. Three inches was what you were aiming for in terms of foot length. Right. And these tiny, tiny feet were considered very attractive on women back in the day. In fact, uh, a woman would make herself more marriageable the smaller the bound feet that she had. Yeah, and that gets into the reasons why you do it. And we found several conflicting things on this. For one, uh, because it started off in kingdoms, uh, it was seen as a sign of royalty. And the upper class kind of took it on as, you know, a sign of wealth and class, sort of the same way that high heels caught on in that being able to wear these really tiny shoes showed that you didn't have to go into the fields and work like everyone else. But then it caught on among the lower classes for the reason that Kristen mentions and that it made you it made it possible to marry up, essentially, because if you had bound feet as a peasant, then, you know, if you found some wealthier guy who was willing to marry you, you wouldn't all of a sudden look out of place uh, when you entered his house. But then there are others who say it was to keep uh, the women at home so that they wouldn't travel very far. They had to basically stay home and work uh, in the house because they couldn't go anywhere. 
Uh, and then there's, you know, just questions of how erotic the men actually found it. Yes. If you go back to um, ancient Chinese texts, you'll find books detailing certain things, sexual things that men could do just to women's feet. And obviously bound feet, um, were not exactly, if you, if you unwrapped them, a lot of times they were smelly and they were prone to decay and mm-hmm. they were also, you know, the product of broken bones and almost looked like hooves. So we, we wouldn't think of them as, as conventionally attractive. However, a lot of times men would only see women's feet, women's bound feet, when they were covered in their special silken lotus shoes that were often embroidered in lovely patterns and things like that. And um, one of the stories that we found noted that uh, one of the most erotic things that a man could do in ancient China was to simply pinch the toe area of a lotus shoe. Just even touching the outside of the shoe was considered just highly, highly sexual. Yeah, it was going to like third base, touching a shoe. Uh, In fact, there was one book that had just 48 different ways you could touch a woman's foot that uh, was sort of, I guess, the Kama Sutra of of the day. Yeah, but it wasn't all, um, historians and anthropologists today are quick to point out that it wasn't all about some kind of cultural foot fetish. Um, There were also economic drivers as well. And um, a story we found in the Wall Street Journal highlights the research of Melissa Brown, who's an assistant professor of anthropology at Stanford University. And she said that in the poorer households, a lot of these women would practice foot binding um, because of economics, because the women, it forced the women and girls to work at home spinning the yarn, processing tea, and shucking oysters. You know, and with their their feet bound, they couldn't necessarily, you know, they weren't very mobile and couldn't really leave the home um, and and trek off on their own. And there's also, I want to bring up a cultural element to it. You know, basically, I think that we look at it from a very historical perspective and we're like, why would you want to have your toes broken and your feet made into these hooves? But uh, one researcher really emphasized that this was something that your mother had done, your grandmother had done. It was uh, a cultural sign that you were becoming a woman, that you were a woman, uh, you know, no different than the things we do maybe to squeeze into high heels today. Um, in fact, when it was outlawed, some women would hide the fact that they were still doing it because it was such this, you know, status symbol and cultural symbol of womanhood. Yeah, I mean, and we, if we think about things like corsets back in the day, women were squeezing themselves unnaturally into these, you know, whalebone corsets that even doctors back then said were not very good for, uh, for our backs and for breathing and for our internal organs. So while foot binding definitely seems even more extreme than that, you know, in Western culture, we've still practiced, you know, our, our own set of kind of bizarre fashion rituals that symbolize womanhood and, you know, an attractive, beautiful woman. So now foot binding loses its hold on society after the Opium Wars uh, when the foreign missionaries came into China. And that's when people started to say, whoa, if you're binding a woman's feet, that's that's very oppressive. You really shouldn't be doing that. And so in 1895, you started to see these anti-footing binding societies forming. Um, telling, you know, men that not to do this, men and women not to do this to their children's feet, that it was making China look barbaric, that China was losing face to the rest of the world. And it was outlawed in 1912. Yeah. And 
not only have scholars suggested that, you know, it was really, you know, these Western missionaries and kind of the interlopers coming in and saying, whoa, this is foot binding is not healthy. You need to stop doing that. The Wall Street Journal also points out that there might have also been an economic reason behind foot binding losing its prestige, because also in the early 20th century, machine made cotton yarn became more widely available, and also uh, tea prices started to go down. And so with that, you have the demise of these home industries, such as spinning yarn and harvesting tea leaves, that initially kept made it necessary to keep the women and the girls home. So there, there was this other component to that. So like you said, Molly, in 1912, we have the official outlawing of foot binding. However, the practice lingered, especially in remote areas of China. And a 1928 census in rural Shanxi province found that 18% of women still had bound feet. But, you know, when the communist government took power in 1949, they're sort of the ones who really hit home that you've got to stop doing this no matter where you are. It's backward. And part of that was just because everyone had to go out into the fields and work. And so these women couldn't keep up with the rest of the of the pack and they were shamed very harshly for their for their inability to move. Now Louisa Lim from NPR points out that the women who were growing up when the Chinese came in and really started to enforce the ban on foot binding uh experienced shaming by two eras because when they were young Foot binding was already forbidden, so they had to bind their feet in secret. And then if, you know, they go out, they, you know, they, they aren't very mobile and they kind of have to, um, to hide this thing that, that they're doing, this very painful thing that they're doing. And then when the communist era rolls around and they have to go out and start farming again, they're shunned for the second time because since their, their unbound feet are not able to, um, carry them as quickly and nimbly in the fields as people who had unbound feet. So at first, you know, they were, they were kind of these, these backward people who still had bound feet. And then there were these uh, kind of lagging, unproductive workers. Yeah. I, I found it really interesting about how those, those people hid the fact they're still doing foot binding when uh, it was first outlawed in 1911. I mean, you were, you were subject to fines if they found out you were foot binding. So they would um, wrap their feet only at night. And in the day when inspectors might come around and see you, you'd unwrap it. And it seems like the process of wrapping and unwrapping would be more painful than just like wrapping it and keeping it wrapped. Right. Because in some of the practices with foot binding, they would intentionally um, start the wrapping process in the winter since it would be so cold that it would numb the young girl's feet. So, I mean, imagining doing that process every day. Or whenever the um, the inspectors would come by, I'm sure was was not could, could not have been um, pleasant to say the least. And it wasn't just their feet that were affected, as you can imagine. Kind of like with uh, with women who bound themselves up in corsets, um, there were many physiological implications that came along with foot binding, including a outside swelling of the abdomen and a line down the back due to the muscle stress and lumbar vertebrae that would curve forward because binding the feet forced a woman to shift her weight on her lower body, putting pressure on her pelvis and eventually lowering it, which actually caused the sacrum to be longer and wider. 
So this, the feet, the binding of the feet had uh, effects all over a woman's body, would literally change a woman's body, which, as you can imagine, affected women as they aged. Yeah, in 1997, the University of California at San Francisco did the first study on the consequences of foot binding. And so at that time, there were all these elderly women who had grown up having their feet bound. And so they studied long-term health effects. And the study found, uh, obviously, that the women had foot deformities. But like Kristen said, it, it just affected their whole body. They couldn't get out of a chair without assistance compared to women who hadn't had bound feet. Uh, and this made them less able to do daily acts like going to the bathroom, working around the house. Uh, they were at much greater risk of suffering hip or spine fractures. The women who hadn't had bound feet, they had lower hip bone density, lower spine bone density. But the thing they said is that for all the difficulties uh, that the women were subject to, they did not complain. And so they didn't know if that was a cultural thing that they were reluctant to do it or if they just gotten used to being, you know, essentially deformed. Right, because again, um, these these lotus shoes that they would wear were highly prized. I mean, up until not too long ago, there was still one shoe factory in China that produced these these special small shoes for the the tiny population of women who still had bound feet. And um, it was also a major part of women's handicrafts back in the day. As um, there was a, a researcher from. Barnard College, Dorothy Coe, who um, went into these villages and really studied um, all of the handicrafts that went into uh, making lotus shoes and how not only important they were to the women, but also um, important they were to some of their religious rituals as well. For instance, Coe points out that um, some people would make an offering of even miniature lotus shoes um, to certain gods because uh, they thought that they would be helpful for praying for sons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even in these recent pieces that have come out, 2007, 2009, uh, about these last women who have these these bound feet, the reporters seem to pick up on the fact that they're still pretty proud of their feet. Yeah. They still look down kind of admiringly like, my feet are so dainty. My feet are still attractive to my husband. Maybe I can't dance as well, but but this is, you know, how I was raised to to look. And I think that it kind of does give you a little bit of a sense of, you know, in a hundred years, what will we look back on and be like, man, that was crazy. You know, how did we do that? Will it be high heels? Would it be, you know, the tight jeans we try and fit into? Like, what's going to be the thing in a hundred years that we're going to be like, why did we do that? Well, I mean, I think the thing too with, with the foot binding is that it's so extreme because you are physically altering your body, breaking bones and tendons and, um, you know, from a very young age in order to kind of reshape the foot. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that we can't not say that foot binding is extreme, but it's just one example, maybe on the extreme end of the spectrum of kind of like you said, Molly, the bizarre things that we do in order to make ourselves conventionally attractive in mm -hmm. our cultures. Yeah, and I think that it because it is so extreme, it becomes this symbol of everything that's wrong with the beauty myth. But, you know, it was kind of striking when reading this research how, you know, I think that if these women had had the choice to do it again, they would have. 
Right, because one thing that Dorothy Coe from Barnard emphasizes in her analysis of foot binding is that we shouldn't just look at these women as victims of this practice. You know, there are just so many different layers to why foot binding happened from, you know, kind of the more erotic elements that we talked about trickling down to how it was integrated into more rural communities um, and, and looking at it from a more holistic perspective than just making the snap judgment of, oh, my God, what a backward tradition. How could that have possibly happened? Well said, Kristen. I, I don't know if we've got anything else to cover on this. So let's open it up to listeners. What do you guys think about foot binding? Uh, any historical fun facts we might have missed that you'd like to let us and the listeners know about? We'd love to hear from you guys. And speaking of listener mail, let's read a little bit of it. I have an email from Lily, who was writing about the Feminist Role Models in Children's Book Podcast. She writes, The ones I thought you missed were the books Cheaper by the Dozen and especially Bells on Their Toes. Bells on Their Toes is so fantastic, and I can't wait to share this book with young girls. Uh, these books are hilarious and so relatable to kids. I laughed out loud reading these books and really wanted a large family. They have a great message and focus on family values. And though they are set back in the day with super traditional men and women roles, I still think there are definitely pro-feminist messages in the book. Furthermore, there's a nice arc of the females in the book battling sexist views. For example, in Bells on Their Toes, the mother is recently widowed and now has sole responsibility of a large family and struggles to keep her family together while working in a man's field, engineering efficiency. But she succeeds by making a demonstration of efficiency in kitchen designs because that's a female's area of expertise. I think reading this book was the most girl power book of my youth, so I definitely recommend it to your listeners. All right, well, I've got an email here from Mike, and this is in response to our podcast on whether or not men and women can just be friends. And uh, he sent us a little equation to calculate whether or not platonic pals may or may not engage in um, a little hanky-panky. So here's what Mike has to say. He says, number one, how much time do the pals spend together in a given day, week, or month? Let's call this factor T. Number two, do they share real stuff like feelings, hopes, dreams, or just super superficial stuff like chatting about entertainment? Let's call this S. Do they drink alcohol together or do drugs? Let's call this D. Are they in committed relationships with other people? Let's call this factor C. And do they find one another at least somewhat attractive? Let's call this A. He says, if T, time together, is 15 hours or more per month, if they, S, share real stuff, like feelings, hopes, and dreams, if the answer to D in terms of drinking alcohol and doing drugs is yes, and if they, C, are not in committed relationships, and A, find each other at least somewhat attractive, then Mike says, yes, sex will happen at some point. So there you have it from Mike. There's the official um, platonic friends equation. Um, the five-variable approach. The five-variable approach. You guys and girls do the math out there. So thanks for sending that in. And again, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Molly and I would love for you to all go on Facebook right now. Don't hesitate. And like our fan page. Where it's Stuff Mom Never Told You on Facebook. What could be easier than that? Just click like. That's all we ask for. And you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Mom Stuff Podcast there. And, of course, we have a blog. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You. And it is found at HowStuffWorks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?